Habakkuk 3.2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Matthew 22, 34-40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then we have John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one other than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friend, friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should be should abide. So whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want to open in prayer from that verse in Habakkuk. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. In your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God, we thank you that your heart is turned towards us this morning. That God, we pray these prayers to a God who hears us. Who actually finds it beautiful that his children are praying and seeking him. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts more so towards that end. That, God, you would cause us to, to be a people who, who love you more, who genuinely desire you more in our lives, in our hearts, more than anything else, God, more than any idol, more than anything that sits on the throne that becomes a replacement of you, God. I pray that you would tear those down. And, Father, you would come to the place where only you belong which is in the center of our heart, in the center of our lives, in the center of our church. God, I pray for less of me and more of you. In Jesus' name, the church says together, amen. Amen. So, um, tomorrow, 13 years ago, uh, January 21st, uh, Carrie and I stood before the altar and we said to, to God and to one another, that we're in it. We said, I do in marriage. So, Carrie, happy anniversary tomorrow. Um, you are the precious love of my life. There is nothing on this earth that is uh, what God has given me to show me his love more than you. So thank you for demonstrating God's love, for showing his love, for giving his love to me and to our family. 
And uh, I'm excited about the next 23, 27, 50 years, whatever God brings us, um, a lifetime, uh, a lifetime. And so Carrie, before we got married, had this ring that she wore. She was a, a intern at Teen Mania for a year, and they gave out these rings, and these rings had a Hebrew inscription on it. And this Hebrew inscription on it said, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. It was a reminder for me as I gave her those, those uh, I, I asked her to marry me, to realize that, that first she belongs to God, then she belongs to me. And it was a reminder, not just that, it was a reminder, first I belong to God, and then I belong to her. And so we are one another's beloveds, but we first belong to God. And the seal of the covenant, this is why we are married before God and witnesses, is because we don't just say, I do to one another. (laughs) It's not a, a marriage of humanity, it's a marriage built in divinity. That God gave us each other to show us, to really show us this relationship that God had with his church through his son Jesus Christ by which Jesus laid down his life. So how am I called to love my wife by laying down my life? And I've said this to men in premarital counseling, in postmarital counseling, in difficulties, and I'm reminding myself of it today. The kind of love laying down my life looks like today is not that I have to die for her, although I will, but that every day I live for her because Christ lived for us and he did die for us and he showed that love to us. We're reading a marriage book together by Paul David Tripp. It says, what, it's called, What Do You Do you Expect? I highly recommend it. And so one of the things I'm learning is this. He says, you do not build a marriage of unity, understanding and love in a few big moments of life but in the 10,000 little moments. That's where love is built. It's not built in in that moment of preparation for marriage or maybe even on the altar or maybe in the big times, the most difficult times. It's those 10,000 moments, that cumulative effect of love that builds trust and unity that lasts a lifetime. We need the Spirit of God for that. And that's not just true of marriage, friends. Today is one of those 10,000 moments for us as God's people. Where it's in the day-to-day work of the gospel in the church by which we participate with God in this grand redemptive story where he's renewing the world. Where it's our comings and our goings and our sitting down and going to bed at night and the things that we say and the things that we do, it's all a part of that cumulative effect that says, I'm going to take one of those 10,000 steps closer to Jesus right now. So we make that step closer to God right now. Because ultimately we're working for this vision. This vision of our church, the vision for our lives. You know, it's nothing new. It's actually a vision that you read in the Bible that you see that God is working towards for the redemptive, for the redemption of His world, the renewal of His world. And, And it's this. It's to see the beauty, harmony, and wholeness of God's kingdom reign in our lives and in our communities. We, we want to see the beauty of Jesus transform us. That's, that's what we want to see. We want to see that beauty transform us, to be ruling and reigning in our lives and in our communities as the gospel. 
that finished work of Jesus Christ radically orients us to these three things. Love God, love others, and live on mission. Love God, love others, and live on mission. The first week we began this series, Greater Love, we talked about how a greater love is one that first remembers and reminds ourselves of the gospel, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Never forgetting that work that Christ has done that sets us up to live for him, not just to receive salvation, although salvation is a beautiful gift that God gives. But he doesn't just purchase us eternal life, but through the gospel, he gives us everyday life. And that first week of greater love is a focus that was on the gospel. And the second week, it looks we looked more into what that love for God looks like. And that love for God has this competing love that gets in the way of our love for God and actually can set itself up as a stronghold over our heart and our life. And that's our love for idols. And so we said that if our love is going to be demonstrated to a lost and broken world, it starts here in our hearts. And we need God to clean house, to get rid of the idols, the bales that we worship, the false gods that take, that, that, that take the place of Jesus on the throne. And so we talked about how these idols are, are, are things, not necessarily bad things, but can even be good things that take the place of God. And we orient our lives around these idols. And so if you went to community group, that was a fun discussion. What are your idols? What are your idols? Why don't you share first? Okay. It was just, let's just wait until you share your idol first. And maybe by the end of this, I'll share mine. Actually, it was a lively community group discussion for my group. And we learned much, much about what God deserves, desires to do in our lives. And so today we're going to look out about how the love of God actually pushes us outwards. There's this inward work of renewal where God's love transforms us from the inside out. But God's love doesn't start, stop there. You know, God's love is a cruciform love. There's a vertical element of it and a horizontal element of it. A cruciform love, meaning that up and down vertically... We know that God loved us and gave himself for us. You have to always ask yourself that question. Do I love God? Like, are my desires stirred for him? Is my life lived in such a way that I love him and I'm pursuing him and I'm honoring him and I'm seeking to obey him? Am I pursuing God through the spiritual disciplines of God's word and prayer? And is that love for God a vibrant love? And if not, know this, has God pursued after me? Yes. Because his love came down through his son, Jesus Christ. And so you have to ask the question of love that says, do I love God? Am I pursuing after God? But the love of God doesn't stop there. And we read this in the greatest commandment. It's interesting that you have the account here in Matthew 22, verse 36. He says, Teacher, so there's these Pharisees and Sadducees, and they're trying to catch Jesus off guard. They're trying to cause him to misstep or say something he would regret later on saying. And they ask him these questions, which were the questions of their day, some of the hard questions, some of the kind of relative questions where it would be easy to trap up Jesus and say, well, that's just your opinion. Well, Jesus answers this question the teacher had asked, or the, the, the Pharisee had asked, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, if we stop there, it seems perfectly reasonable for the people that are there. (laughs) That's really good, Jesus, because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, that's the command that Moses gave to God's people. It was kind of a summarization of the Ten Commandments. This is the law of God given to humanity. And the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't have anything to say about Jesus saying that was the greatest commandment. But notice how Jesus didn't stop there. He could have stopped there. He actually wasn't asked to give any more of an answer, but he did. He said, and the second of these is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, Why does Jesus say, why did he continue? Why didn't he just leave it as love God? Why does he say the second of these is like it? Because there's an intrinsic connection between the love of God and the love for your neighbor. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot say you love God and despise your neighbor. You cannot say you love God and hate your brother. You cannot say you love God and be okay with lying to somebody living in the world of deception. You cannot say you love God while you covet your neighbor's wife. Notice the connection of the Ten Commandments that the first four commands are related to our love for God and the last six commands are related to our love for others. And that's why Jesus says that all of the law of the prophets hinge on these two commandments. This is a summary of all the Bible This is what God is calling you to do. Love God and love others. It's interesting there, though, how Jesus chose these two commands to be the commands that summarize all of the scriptures. 613 commands in the Old Testament. 613 commands. And in these 613 commands, many of them are focused on the doings of our lives. But Jesus chose to focus on the things that represent our loving. Because it says that the work of God, the hard work of ministry, the hard work of pursuing the things of God is the pursuing of love. And it's not just a transformation of our actions that has to take place, although that follows But lest we get the cart before the horse, it's a transformation of our heart that God goes directly for. And that's what Jesus is making evident here in this time. John 15, 12 says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So you have the love of God where Jesus loves us vertically. And then you have the love of those around us to our left and to our right. Where we are commanded, as Christ has loved us, so we ought to love one another. John 15. How are you called to love one another as Christ has loved you? That's a pretty high standard, isn't it? So the person that would have been hearing Jesus give this command, summarize these commandments, may have thought this was reasonable. Something that even feels within our reach. And maybe you hear the, the, those commands, love God and love others. Like simple, isn't it? Really, really simple until you've tried. <laughs> if you, until you've tried and you've failed and you realize that it's really quite an impossible work unless there's a work where God generously gives his spirit 
the work of God's Holy Spirit so that I could love God and I could love others. Because even Jesus says, I can do nothing apart from him. I can do nothing apart from him. So the greater love that we pray for in order that our hearts would be enlarged for the love for God and love for others is the greater love by which the Spirit gives. So even today as you're hearing the Word of God being proclaimed, there must be a conviction of the Spirit. There must be a work to where the Holy Spirit works in our hearts and lives to bring these things to reality, to cause us to repent of sin, to cause us to replace the idols of our lives with the one who belongs on the throne, King Jesus, in order to forsake ourselves in order to love those around us. There's a lot of talk in the world about self-love. You have to love yourself. And if you don't love yourself, you're not going to be able to actually love anyone else. And and you know what I want to tell you? There's actually some truth in that. There really is. Because there's emotional health. There's physical health. There's sometimes where we're just spent giving ourselves to other people so much. But the answer is not love yourself. The answer is actually love God. Because the more you love God, the more you have a greater capacity to fill yourself with the things of God so that you could be spent for others, so that you can give yourself to others. And so instead of loving self, it's not a self-love. We're going to actually put God on the throne and we're going to seek Him. And that's the best thing for self is to turn to Him. Because the greater I love God, the greater I actually am able to love my wife. If I seek to love myself above my wife, then what happens is then I neglect her. I neglect my family. I neglect my kids because it's all about, no, this is what I need to do for my energy level today. And my wife's just exhausted. And she's saying, help me do the dishes. (laughs) I've had just as long of a day as you have. Come on, man. But we, we friends, need to realize that the greater capacity by which we love God is the greater endowment for us to give that love to others. You will actually be a better lover to the world around you to the degree that you love God. And so the command of Jesus here is not a love that's divorced from the love of God, but a love that's intrinsically connected to it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because you know you need God. Guess what? You know your neighbor does too. You know the world around you does too. You know your husband and wife does too. You don't have to nudge them right now. You can if you want. You know that there's people that need God so powerfully. And so it's a love that's connected to the vine. John 15.5 says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What Jesus is advocating for, he's telling this illustration and it's actually quite powerful. Jesus says, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And that for those branches that don't bear the fruit of love, what does God do? He cuts them off and he throws them into the fire. But if the love of God is in you, then it's a love that's connected to the vine. And it's a love that's actually bearing fruit because your connection is to the vine. And if your connection is not to the vine, then it's a dead love. It's a dead affection. It's dead emotions. 
And Jesus says that that's the branches that I cut off and I throw into the fire because the love that God has for us is a love that is uniquely connected to him. And we recognize that. Here's your, your options for uh, a love of the world around us. Number one is you could put yourself at the center. So the whole world kind of revolves around you. And so you, your love for others is based upon what they give to you, how they make you feel, how they make you react. And don't dismiss this right away because actually you could probably put yourself in this category as a lover of self because we typically naturally gravitate to those relationships that most give us something. And if those relationships give us something, then we give ourselves to those relationships because when we do a cost-benefit analysis, this kind of internal thing that says, what am I going to get from this? We know that we're going to come in in the positive. And so it's really easy to love those who make self feel good because self feels like it can have and get something from giving that love to others. So we'll give ourselves to the, the things that we'll love those things that we see benefit ourselves. Every relationship then becomes a buy and a sell. <laughs> and what can I get from this? How is this going to make me do as a businessman? How is this going to make me look around others? And that internal, that internal kind of self-reflection that we do on a regular basis has to change. There has to be God coming into that and changing that so that we're not at the center. Or, or you could put others at the center. And this is where people get exhausted is because we put others at the center because our, our hope is to make other people happy. We talked about this in, by the way of idolatry. You know, if you put your kids at the center of your life, then your kids run your life. I have experience. I know that. My kids can easily run my life because I can easily put them at the center of my life. You put someone else on the throne and that other person that you put on the throne or those other people, they become an idol. And so your whole life revolves around them. And to the degree that they make you feel loved or lovely, it makes you feel good to the degree they don't it causes you to say wow they're not worth it which no one should be put in the place of God that's an incredible expectation upon them that they cannot fulfill and then the last option is that God is at the center or you could reorient your relationships to where the cruciform love is knowing God first and from that love giving yourself to the love of others evaluating how you love by the cross how has God loved me? Who has God not loved? Who has God called me to love? And how do I live my life in the horizontal, a love that seeks those around us to know and to love God? The context here is Leviticus chapter 19. That's where Jesus quotes this passage from. It would have been actually a familiar passage to those who were there, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those who were the legal scholars of their time. And when Jesus, uh, uh, or in Leviticus 19, when it mentions love your neighbor as yourself, one, it gives a, a list of commands that it kind of fires off. Many of them are repetitive of the Ten Commandments. Don't lie. Don't deceive. Don't uh, cause your, don't show uh, favoritism to the poor or to the to the rich and neglect the poor. But there's also a, one command that says, uh, when you harvest your crops, leave the crops on the edges so that the wanderer, the sojourner, the refugee 
the immigrant can go and can grab those crops and to have those crops in order to meet their needs. It's a powerful command because it's a command that says don't neglect the least of these. It's not just uh, in order for us to look at life the way we view it. It's to look at life the way God views it. And God says the least of these are really, really important in the economy of of his kingdom. And so these are the ones that we love. It's the ones that we would naturally turn away from because we know that that love is costly. We know it takes time. We know it takes energy. This is why in the church we are called to love in the context of community. Not something that God is calling us to in isolation, but that's something that God is actually calling us to to do together. To love the least of these together. Yes, God does put it on individual hearts. And those individuals bring that to the body. And we as the body love on one another You don't love in isolation. You saw in Acts chapter 2.42 that they gathered together in one another's home. And the Bible says that they lacked nothing. Why? Because they gave themselves to one another as any had need. And the Lord added their number day by day those who were being saved. So there's this work of love that happened in the context of community where they were giving to one another and the needs of one another's were met. There's something really important for us to hear in the needs of others because we, we have this kind of survival instinct maslow's hierarchy you might have heard of it and at the bottom of that is is your what you need for survival like shelter and food and clothing and the basic necessities of life and from there it goes towards emotional well-being and social well-being and that hierarchy goes up and and what maslow says is that we naturally we naturally get in survival mode and try to fill these needs in the same way we seek to survive in those areas of physical life, emotional life, spiritual life, belonging. In that same way, we are called to love one another. The same way that you think, I need to have shelter over my head. We need to be thinking about that for our neighbor, the world around us. The same way you think about having food in your belly and how hungry you are in those survival moments. Don't know if any of us have ever been there, but if you have, we can pretend you would want someone to give you food that you needed. And in the same way, Jesus says, the golden rule, you should think about the world around you and you should give of those things. And that's our call as a church, as we do that together in the context of community. John 15, 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. God appointed us before the foundations of the world. His love came to us, chose us, and he appointed us that we would go and bear fruit, that we would be his ambassadors, that we would be a people who choose not to live for ourselves, but to live for God. And the heart of God is a heart that loves others. There's more that God seeks to bring into his kingdom. And he has chosen us to go and bear fruit. And he says, so whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. He gives us everything we need to accomplish the task of loving others. This is what he gives to us through the power of the Spirit. This is what he gives to us in the the church community. 
I find it amazing to get with a group of people that are in the church. And, and I, as I do that, I see different maturity levels of people's spiritual lives. I see different maturities in people's lives in different ways. Somebody might be struggling financially. Someone may have just done Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University a year ago, and they got their house in order. And one of the things that happens is you see that there's this beautiful connection to where in the context of community, we actually can help one another, Right? If you're struggling to know how to read your Bible, there's somebody probably in this group, certainly in a group, that can help you grow in your knowledge of the Lord in Scriptures. And that's the beauty of loving one another in the context of community is because through the power of the Holy Spirit, He's using us in the lives of one another. He really is. We need each other. The Holy Spirit's using us in that way. About uh, a year ago, maybe a little over a year ago, a woman named Omega came into our church. Uh, Omega's an elderly lady. She heard of us through um, uh, the YMCA. She uh, uh, was a member here at the YMCA. She would take her bus, a bus here each and every day to come to church on Sunday and to come to the YMCA. Over time, Omega became a part of our church family. Uh, she became a part of these worship services. She became a part of some meals together. She became a part of your life and my life. And it wasn't too long after I met Omega that I realized that her housing situation wasn't certain. Uh, that she was going to have to move. And so I started asking her questions about her ability to do this. And I realized she wouldn't have the ability to do this. And that there might be a time where this woman would go homeless. And so several months later, it was... Uh, a call that Josiah got here at the YMCA where Omega called him and said, hey, I'm, I'm, I don't have a home tonight. And so that's where the church came around Omega and loved on Omega and several people opened their home so that she could live there. And she was staying at places three or four days at a time, maybe even a week at a time. And then we were able to get her into a transition fa- facility called uh, Orlando Rescue Mission. And she lived there for maybe a month or a month and a half. And then most recently, she had a place where she lived. She was paying an amount of money that was not sustainable. And so she had to move again. And it was through the context of relationships to where she was able to to find out who's the person that's going to be able to help her to to be long-term in a place. And so about two weeks ago, we got a call from Amiga, and she was on a bus on her way to Texas. And she said uh, on the way there, uh, in, she, she, she called us and she said, uh, my grandson is taking me in his home. He and his, he and his daughter want to care for me. And we were so pleased at this because we had spent months lingering over, wondering over, fretting over, how are we going to care for this woman? And we realized that God gave us everything we needed to do what we needed when we needed it. And then God also gave her her grandson, who she raised as her own. And her daughter, his his wife, Kiwan. Man, Kiwan is a marvelous woman. I spoke to her on the phone on Friday. She loves the Lord and loves Omega. And she says, "She she is my grandmother just as much as she's Arthur's. And seeing Omega brought into that home and now there's this infusement of love and dignity. And I tell you, Crosspoint, she couldn't do it without our community loving on her. 
Another story I want to tell you is a story of Richard and Kay. Richard and Kay came to our church. It was about a year ago. And as Richard and Kay came to our church, uh, Richard told me um, that they had been out of church for quite some time. Actually, he kind of warned me, you're going to have some problems with me. Look at Richard. Uh, You know, he's a feisty man, uh, Richard. He's got this Jamaican accent, and he's got this glare in his eye that'll just pierce right through to you. But Kay's even more feisty. Um, so back in November, Richard had an operation where he had to remove a tumor, a very delicate operation. The surgery actually went well. It's the recovery that's been going really difficult in the hospital since the middle of November, uh, until today. And as I met with Richard and Kay in the hospital, it brought me joy to know that many of our other church members have met with them in the hospital. And Kay's words to me was the church has loved on us so well. So well. Many of you have visited them. If you're in my community group, you've checked on them and been a part of their lives. And to that, they give gratitude. And I cannot wait until Richard, through his physical therapy, is able to come back here and they're able to worship with us. That love is a love that God has produced in you, in us, in our church And I tell you, those are just two small stories of a greater love that God wants to do in a greater way. Omega said, I thank God for this church. She said it to me over the phone. I thank God for this church. I couldn't imagine living as a woman who is trying to figure out how to live in this world in in the Internet age and trying to find out how can I do this without family and friends and those loved ones close by. You became that family and you became that friends. And today she's in a place of comfort and care and safety because we had a small little part to play in loving her. And there's stories in your life. And there's stories in my life and the story of the church that's radically loving and at great sacrifice to itself. And you know why we're doing this series, Greater Love? Because we're not doing enough, in all honesty. There's areas where we have to grow. And when I say that as a church, I say that for myself personally. There's areas where I am personally convicted to say that I am actually putting myself at the center or putting other things at the center and God is at the center. And so my ability to love is hindered because we can do greater things because of the power of the Holy Spirit that's at work within us. We need a greater Love. There's an author and pastor, his name's Steve Timmis. He wrote a book, and the book was about these statements that he had wished Jesus had never said. And so he says, I wish Jesus hadn't said that. One of the statements that he wished Jesus hadn't said was the statement, Love your neighbor as yourself, because it actually cuts the grain of our reality and cause and, and, and starts to come in on our life and forces us, really forces us to come to terms with the word of Jesus, the words of Jesus that says, love your neighbors as, your, as yourself. And so in Luke, there's another account of this command being said, this time it's a, uh, this time it's a teacher who is telling Jesus the greatest command because Jesus asked them. Maybe they've heard of this before and it's a repetitive thing that was going on, but it's a different account this time. And Jesus says, well, why don't you tell me what the greatest commands are? And he said it, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
But then the teacher says back to Jesus in verse 29, but he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Have you ever thought that question? I know I have. Because when I'm thinking about my neighbor, I'm thinking about a geographical location and I'm thinking about those who are in my neighborhood or those who are in my vicinity at that time. So if I'm thinking about who's my neighbor, then that actually limits me to certain people, which, you know, sounds reasonable, right? I mean, if I'm going to follow this command, how am I going to follow this command if I'm called to love everybody? Who is my neighbor seeking to justify himself? Now, there's 7 billion people on the planet. We couldn't possibly be called to love every one of those people. Well, could we? So, here you have a man who assumed... So, here Jesus begins to tell him a story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. When I was in... uh, When I lived in West Palm Beach, actually, there's a hospital still called Good Samaritan Hospital. And so we think of the Samaritan with endearing terms today. But when the Jew heard that word Samaritan, they wouldn't have seen it the same way that we do today. You can turn with me to the account in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 10. Jesus tells this story. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him going, when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to that place, saw him pass by the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring out, uh, pouring on oil and wine. And when he, then he sat him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, "Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back." Which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, "The one." Who showed him mercy? And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The story of the Good Samaritan is an interesting and intriguing story because when the the Jews heard of this as Jesus spoke it, they wouldn't have been shocked at the priest or the Levite passing by on the other side. The priest and the Levite, they had. They had work that they had to do in the temple. And so if they would have stopped to help this man who was left for dead and naked on the side of the Jericho Road, then they could have made themselves unclean by interacting or touching this man. And so it didn't shock them that the priest or the Levite would have passed by on the other side because they had God's business to do. But Jesus draws their attention to a Samaritan. 
A Samaritan in that time period was the, the, the scum of the earth. They were the half-breeds between the Jews and the Gentiles. And going back 600 years before were a part of the group of Jews that decided they didn't want to resettle in Jerusalem. And they began to breed with the Gentiles. And so the Samaritans even started kind of a quasi-Jewish religion that the Jews despised even more. And so the Samaritan was a, a word that you would have even shuddered at hearing It was not a person that you wanted to associate with. And so this man who's left for dead on this notorious Jericho road, this road would have been known for the robbers and the thieves and the criminals. There are easy places for them to hide and to prey on us unsuspecting passerbys. And so this man who was left for dead there was a man who was in need. And it was the Jews that passed by him, the Levite and the priest. But yet it was the Samaritan who stopped. You know the story of the woman in the well and the woman says to Jesus when he's there, you should not, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. And Jesus is saying that the one who wouldn't, you wouldn't associate with is the one who stopped and the one who cared for this man in his most desperate point of need. And how did he care for him? He cared for him with a greater love. He took the oil, his possessions, the oil and wine that he needed for the journey, and he used it to clean the man's wounds. And he took the clothing off his back in order to bound up his wounds. And he took the animal that he was riding, and he put the man on the animal. And in spite of the fact that there were many, many people who would have wanted to kill them around him at that time, this Samaritan brought him to an inn. And at the inn... He said, here's enough money for right now. If, you need, if, if this man costs you any expense, then I'll take care of it. And he leaves him at the inn and says, I'm coming back to check on him. And if I owe anything to you on his account, I'll settle the score. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that you wouldn't expect. It's a love that's so powerful and so profound that causes us to say, Do I love like that? Do I love like that? The Samaritan saying, man, if I was left for dead on the side of the road, I'd want somebody to do this to me. That's the way we're called to love in the same way. This man wasn't his physical neighbor. It was a man that was in his vicinity at the time that had a need. How many times do we neglect those that have the need around us when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself? How many times do we Forget that the love of God is meant to move out of our lives and into the lives of others. Tomorrow we celebrate the Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And it's a powerful day for us because I think even as Christians, certainly as a nation, because of what he's done in the area of civil rights and equality for our country, But one of the things I love celebrating about Dr. Martin Luther King is that the gospel informed and transformed the way he viewed civil rights. The gospel changed the way he looked at the world around him. It wasn't his only experience, which was a powerful experience and a horrifying experience that shaped the way he lived, but was also the work of Jesus that was the equalizing effect for all humanity, where Martin Luther King Jr. believed that no man stood above the other and his basis, his theological basis was that at the foot of the cross, all men are equal. 
Because all men are equally in need of Jesus. So Dr. Martin Luther King says this about this parable. He says, now, you know, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levi didn't stop. At times we say they were busy going to a church meeting or an ecclesiastical gathering. And they had to get down to Jerusalem so they wouldn't be late for their meeting. At other times we would speculate that there was a religious law that 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 one who was engaged in religious ceremonials, like the priest and the Levite, was not to touch a human body 24 hours before the ceremony. And every now and then we begin to wonder whether maybe not, maybe they were going down to Jerusalem or down to Jericho, rather to organize a Jericho Road Improvement Association. That's a possibility. Maybe they would have been better to deal with the problem from the casual route rather than get bogged down with the individual effect. But I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Miss King and I were first in Jerusalem, we rented a car and drove down to Jerusalem, down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on the road, I said to my wife, I could see why Jesus used this as a setting for his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conductive for ambushing. You start out in Jerusalem, which is about 1,200 miles above, uh, or 1,200 feet above sea level. And by the time you get down to Jericho, 15 or 20 minutes later, you're about 22 feet below sea level. So you can imagine just the windy road from Jerusalem to Jericho. He said, that's a dangerous road. And in the days of Jesus, it came to be known as the bloody pass. And you know, It's possible that the priest and the Levite looked over this man on the ground and wondered if the robbers were still around. Or it's possible that they felt that they felt that that man on the ground was just faking it. And he was acting like he'd been robbed or hurt in order to seize them over there, lure them there for a quick and easy seizure. And the first question that the priest asked and the first question that the Levite asked was this. If I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the good Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? What will happen to him? Do you know that the whole story of Jesus Christ is that question? Jesus knowing what would happen to you if he didn't come down and rescue us. Jesus is saying to the Jews in the story, you are the man left for dead on the side of the road and I'm the one who came from the outside to help you. I'm the Samaritan that you would reject that you needed. I am the one who gave of myself sacrificially so that you can be loved, so that you can be loved by God. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I has loved you. Jesus said at the end of this parable, now you go and do likewise. The greater love that God is calling to us is a greater love that says, I will lay down my life for my neighbor. Because just as God counts us as friends, we count the world around us as friends that we will lay our lives down for. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. We need your spirit, God, to show us both our our mercy, the mercy we need and the mercy we can give. We need your spirit, God, to 
move us to a place of giving our lives to one another. Seeing a greater love come in our city. Greater love come through our church. Giving ourselves as you have given yourself to us. Help us see first the love that God has for us. Help us see second the love that you call us to in our neighbor. That we would go and do likewise in Jesus' name. The church says together.